When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sienna Elizabeth is the name of our newest royal baby. The queen is back at work. So ho, 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 much royals around the world news. And Jack Brooksbank spills the tea on a secret underground passage to a bar. It's all right here on episode 40 of Podcast Royal. <laughs> We've made it to episode 40, Jessica. How about that? That is super exciting. That's a milestone episode, just like I had a milestone birthday a couple of weeks ago. 40 is a milestone. We're going to blink and we'll be at our one year anniversary on November 14th. I'm so excited and so happy our listeners have gone along with this journey with us. It's been so much fun. And we're really just getting started. So welcome back, everyone, to episode 40 of Podcast Royal. How are, you, our, how are you doing? I can't speak. And what are you into this lovely first week of October that doesn't feel like October? It's still so hot outside. Yeah, I am doing great. And it's, speaking of weather, it is super rainy here today. Also, yep. it's it definitely wasn't a crisp fall day in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, but this week I am really into houndstooth. Okay. So you may have caught that um, Duchess Catherine was um, in a houndstooth dress today when she was out mm-hmm. and about. And um, if our listeners know anything about Alabama, Um, Alabama football fans are often seen sporting houndstooth and we are right in the middle of football season this year and um, I was thinking about it this week and it's just such a classic pattern you know it's like stripes polka dots plaid and houndstooth Um, and I've seen some really pretty clothes lately with with a houndstooth pattern so I'm definitely into that this week. Well, Houndstooth is on my no list this week because Alabama just beat my alma mater this last (laughs) weekend in football. So normally I love Houndstooth. I have a couple of Houndstooth coats, but I'm not, well, first of all, I'm not wearing a coat this week because it's 9 million degrees outside. But yeah, I I normally like Houndstooth, but not this week. I'm on. Yeah, I thought about you Saturday. (laughs) Yeah, well. I'm not, this is not a sports podcast and I am not a sports caster, but we were supposed to show, I went to Ole Miss for those that don't follow American college football and Ole Miss did not play as well as they should have with their number 12 ranking, but no one can beat Alabama and it's boring. Let me put this out on the record right now that I actually like Alabama football, but it's just boring to be that good. I mean, I'm sure it's great to be an Alabama (laughs) fan, but I'm bored. I'm bored. So (laughs) there's that. I'm a hater. I'm a hater this week. So (laughs) this week I am into Sarah Jessica Parker revealing this week that we have a release month. We don't have the exact date yet, or if the date is out there, I don't know it, but she said that the sex in the city 
revival is coming out in December. So that gives me something to look forward to. Sex in the City is my all-time favorite TV show. I have probably seen every episode at least, I don't know, at least four or five times. And I can't wait to see what this revival is going to be about and how they're going to make it work without Samantha. I know I was going to say that I have seen Sex in the City as well. And I'm kind of bummed that Samantha won't be returning because she is certainly an entertaining character. Well, they're replacing her with, I think, three different characters. So it takes three different people to replace Samantha. But the great news is, is that there's more diversity in this cast. And so I'm really excited to see that and see what at least Charlotte, Miranda, and Carrie have been up to for the last, what, 13 or so years since we got, no, eight or so years. I don't know how many years it's been since Sex and the City 2, the movie came out, but uh, at least we know that by the end of 2021, we will have seen the show. So I am super pumped for that. Awesome. Yeah, I I can't wait either. I'm also super pumped because we have a very stacked line. We were just going over this before we started recording. We're not going to reveal who they are, but we have five incredible guests. Like I'm talking A-listers coming on the show by the end of 2021. And that makes me happy as well. Yeah, I know. I think we'll have some really, really great episodes coming up for our listeners. And um, we'll have... Uh, some really fun um, content to share. And I'm, I'm excited about this. Yeah, it's going to be a jam-packed October, November, December. Um, we're going to have some fun. But before that, we've got some things to talk about. So let's jump into the Royal Rundown. And then uh, much, much waiting has happened for our Royal Reads, but we're going to do that this week. And I'm super pumped about that. So, but we'll first cover the news. So we have a name, Sienna Elizabeth Mapelli Mozzi pays homage to Beatrice's grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, as well as apparently Beatrice's red hair. A source told Hello, quote, they were looking for an Italian name which started with an S for Sarah to honor the Duchess of York and also reflected the golden rust color of both of the the Duchess's hair color and Beatrice's, which the new baby shares. So I guess the baby is a little redhead, which is so cute. So odds makers were actually kind of right. The first name did end in an A and was Italian inspired. Elizabeth was included. So Sienna does have a royal title, but it's not from the British royal family. Edo, who is Beatrice's husband, is from Italian aristocracy. So that is where she gets her royal title. B announced Sienna's name on Friday, which was 13 days after her birth. So almost as long as it took to learn Beatrice's name, which took two weeks. And she put a photo of her little footprints. Did you see it? I did. I loved it. Yeah, it was cute. And then Edo, who is ever the wordsmith, wrote in his own post, quote, feeling so much love and gratitude for my amazing wife, baby Sienna and Wolfie. This is me talking now, not him. Wolfie is his uh, son from a previous relationship. These are the day this back to Edo now. These are the days I never want to forget. 
This week, a friend said to me the sweetest saying that with every child, you grow a whole new heart. Is that not so sweet? So what are your thoughts on the name? I like it. I do too. I love it. And you know, I love how much thought the Royals really put into selecting a name. I mean, even something like, you know, a nod to red hair or the same initial as your mother. I mean, some of these things, I don't know if I would even consider putting some of that consideration into, into a name. I hope so. I I mean, I love the, um, just how special that is, but, um, I thought it was great. I was a little bit surprised in a way. Um, I don't think I would have guessed Sienna. Um, but like you said, it is Italian. Um, and I, I think we all at this point shouldn't be surprised that Elizabeth was, um, coordinated into that, the name somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's almost, a, an expectation of Royal women <laughs> yeah. born into the family at this Charlotte point. Charlotte Elizabeth, Lilibet. Well, I guess it's a little bit Diana, but anyway, it, it's yes, it's it's and Philip as well. If it was a boy, right? Yeah, um, you know, but it's it's a very pretty name, um, and I certainly can't wait to see more photos as she grows. You know, we know Beatrice does not have a public Instagram account, so I don't know how many photos we'll get, but hopefully, we'll get some maybe through um, through some other family members. But, but Edo does, and Edo is so romantic. Like he is just, oh, he is so sweet. Like just, he's, he, I'm a words person. Like I'm really enchanted by words and he just is incredibly romantic and sweet. And I, I love him. Actually, I love both of the York sisters' husbands. I love Jack and I love Edo. Yeah. I, I think they, um, they did pretty well with. with yeah, they their- did a great job. They did a great job. So Sienna, by the way, is now 11th in line to the throne. And the queen is back in action. She and Charles stepped out on Friday at Balmoral where her majesty and the Prince of Wales marked the start of official planting season in the UK by planting a copper beech tree in honor of the queen's upcoming platinum jubilee. This marked the first time in almost two months that we've seen her majesty as she has been enjoying her summer holiday at Balmoral. And then we saw her again on Saturday as she opened the sixth session of Scottish Parliament alongside Charles and Camilla. She spoke of Philip for the first time since his death, saying, quote, I have spoken before of my deep and abiding affection for this wonderful country and of the many happy memories Prince Philip and I always held of our time here. It is often said that it is the people that make a place, and there are a few places where this is truer than Scotland, as we have seen in recent times, end quote. So I thought the queen looked stunning in green on Saturday. What did you think? I completely agree. It was a really nice, deep shade of green and those gold buttons. I mean, they just really popped on her coat. Um, I thought it was a great look. And I don't know if you noticed her hat, but um, that was fun too. She had the feathers coming out of her hat. And of course, her classic black handbag that she always Mm -hmm. carries. Um, But something that kind of stuck out to me, I thought it was really sweet words that she said about Scotland. And um, I've noticed lately that there have been a few members of the royal family um, really speaking to 
the special place that Scotland has um, mm-hmm. in their heart and their experiences there. So really interesting to hear from her. And, and we've heard from Prince William um, in the recent weeks too about um, how close he uh, considers Scotland to be. Yeah, William, I remember reporting on this a few weeks ago that he was uh, talking about Scotland and he just, I mean, they, they adore Scotland. I mean, Scotland is where William met Kate. And so it's, it's, I know it's a really special place to all of the family. So just when I thought Kate couldn't get any cooler or more Mm well-rounded the morning after the James Bond premiere, we spoke about last episode Here comes Kate showing up with William for a surprise visit in Northern Ireland, rocking the heck out of a purple pantsuit and holding a doggone tarantula named Charlotte in her hand. So in pictures, Kate is smiling like this doesn't phase me at all. Meanwhile, in the background, William looks slightly grossed out in the background. That is how I would be. There is absolutely no way that I would hold a tarantula that huge without screaming in terror. So seriously, Kate is the aspirational woman and I'm just along for the ride. So when you saw her holding that gigantic tarantula, what were your thoughts? You know, I'm not sure if I... I've never been in a situation where I've had the opportunity to hold a tarantula. I Thank God. I kind of feel like... In the moment, I might be willing to do it for, you know, for the cameras, but um, I just had to imagine that she decided to do that so she could go back home and tell her kids that she held a spider (laughs) named Charlotte. And I feel like especially she did this for Princess Charlotte, although I imagine the spider maybe was named after Charlotte's Web, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, but that's just a a nice coincidence. Also, do you remember in the David Attenborough video, Charlotte said she loves spiders. So Kate is probably like mom of the year, coolest mom ever. And meanwhile, there's a lot of things Kate does that I just am not very good at. And this is one that I just would not do. No, thanks. Like that's, that's really brave and cool of her, but that's why she's the Duchess of Cambridge and I'm not. Well, would you rather hold a snake? No, I would rather hold none of the above. (laughs) I would rather stay away from all spiders, all snakes, all creepy crawlies, if at all possible. Only the furry animals. Well, I guess the yeah, yeah. I'll hold. I'll hold any dog. I'll hold any cat. I'll hold any koala. I don't care. Just not, not no, 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 not critters. What were your thoughts on the purple pantsuit? Oh, I loved it. I mean, you know, we've seen Megan step out in the red pantsuit, which we've discussed in length at, in the last episode, but that that purple is a very unique purple. We've seen Kate in lavender before and mm-hmm. she's looked beautiful in it. That is a that is a very royal purple. Purple is not my favorite color. So I went to, I mentioned earlier in the episode, I went to grad school at Ole Miss, but I went to undergrad at the University of Kansas and our big rival is Kansas State University and their color is purple. So like from birth, I have avoided the color purple, probably like Alabama fans avoid the color orange, orange yeah. or, or Auburn fans avoid the, the houndstooth print. I know we're getting kind of local here, but um, I don't own a lot of purple, but I mean, it was, it, it was gorgeous. I liked it. What did you think? Yeah, you know, I was thinking too, 
with, with myself, if I do a purple, it, it's rare. It's not my favorite either, but I usually go for more of like an, like a aubergine or a, eggplant kind of shade. Um, mm-hmm. she did this bright color and I feel like she pulls off bright pops of color really, really well. And I loved that she had her hair up in this like high ponytail with, um, you know, this really nice tailored pantsuit. I am more of a fan of these skinnier straight leg dress pants, um, than the wide leg. Um, so I, I liked it. She had the chunky heels. I thought it looked really great. Um, and then while we are on Kate's clothes, I did mention that houndstooth dress that she had on today and wanted to get your thoughts on that one as well. I saw a photo that they posted on the, um, Instagram account for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And it was funny because she was in a children's library and I just felt like I was getting major teacher vibes with the dress, but like (laughs) a modern spin, like it looked great. I I loved kind of how the pleats fell. And of course that pussy bow neckline. Um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was a great choice, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah, I liked it too. And I want to rewind really quickly to the purple pantsuit. So she was really following Megan's fashion lead in, first of all, a monochromatic pantsuit with a wide leg. Um, Megan didn't wear chunky heels, but she had a turtleneck on as well. And Megan wore a lot of turtlenecks last week or the week before whenever she was in New York City. So I just thought that was interesting. But um, no, I thought Kate looked beautiful today. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a good choice. And of course I loved the, uh, the gray pumps she had on with the dress. Um, I just thought it, it was perfect for the event. So, yes. And speaking of today, what she was doing. So she was out today, which is Tuesday to visit university college London's center for longitudinal studies to learn. I don't know what a longitudinal study is, by the way, I guess, anyway, I'm not going to make myself sound more idiotic by continuing that sentence. But anyway, Center for Longitudinal Studies to learn more about research done on the well-being of young kids. Does longitudinal studies just mean like long-range studies? That is a great question. Maybe I should Anyway, Google. that's neither here nor there. But the center <laughs> launched its Children of the 2020s project, which tracks the development of children from nine months to five years. So Kay released a statement about the project, calling it a landmark study that, quote, will illustrate the importance of the first five years and provide insights into the most critical aspects of early childhood, as well as the factors which support or hinder positive lifelong outcomes, end quote. So again, I'm a broken record at this point, but I love to see her passion project continuing. Um, and I did a quick search here while you were talking and you are correct. So in a longitudinal study, it says that the researchers conduct several observations over the same subjects over a long period of time. It could be many, many years. So, um, that is longitudinal study. And I'm assuming she was, I should have read this closer. I'm assuming she was in a children's library today. It looked like that, um, from what I could tell on the photo. So. Well, don't say you didn't learn anything on Podcast Royal because I just learned something on Podcast Royal. Thank you for, for following up on that. So, okay, pivot, major pivot. The queen is hiring. If you are a pastry chef and okay with making 20,500 pounds or $27,000 annually, which is not me on both fronts, that is not enough money and I don't bake. Well, I do bake, but I don't bake for the queen. 
Um, I, <laughs> I don't know how, I, I, yeah, I'm not a pastry chef. I can make good chocolate chip cookies though, but you can apply on the Royal Family's website. By the way, I saw, and I missed this posting, not that I would have applied, although how cool would it be? But um, apparently Kate's, um, I don't know if it's her, like, I don't know what you call her stylist. Like there was a, an assistant posting for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and part of the job description included arranging uh, Kate's wardrobe and it's just a temporary maternity backfill position but that closed at the end of September so I missed that one but this one is still open listeners if you want to go be a pastry chef and make not a lot of money but you would get to work for the royal family so that's cool so this is a rhetorical question but why are these royal jobs always so low paying like the, you would think they would be you know really really well paying jobs I don't know yeah, I don't really know either. And I, I was thinking about that. And, you know, I know some of their jobs, they do come with some other benefits. Um, so I did a little bit of digging on this. Um, and this particular job listing, it says it comes with a 15% employer contribution pension scheme plus benefits. It also has meals provided, and they do offer live-in accommodations, but there's a note on there saying that if you, I guess, choose the live-in accommodations, the salary's adjusted. So I guess potentially you could make less than that if, if you needed the uh, room and board, um, but it's hmm. a full-time, it's a full-time role. So, I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be your job. And they're looking for someone with two years experience and experience in a five-star kitchen. Um, so part of me, you're only going to pay them 20,500 pounds. Well, you know, part of me is thinking that maybe there are people out there who are willing to make this salary level just to have on their resume that they worked in the palace kitchen. Yeah. And Um, I was about to say, you probably have so much. Well, I was about to say, if they're going to give you room and board, then okay, I can go for that. But if they're going to deduct your pay, if you take the room and board, then come on now. But I mean, I guess that could open so many doors, right? If you worked as the pastry chef or whatever for the royal family. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I also found an article uh, that actually talked about some of the higher paying jobs at the palace. So Here's one. The Queen's private secretary. Are you, do you know how much uh, this person makes? I don't, but I'm so glad you do. Yeah. So their salary is 146,000 pounds. So that's Uh, better. So that is a better paying one. And then the comptroller, who is the person that organizes her public appearances and other events like garden parties, this position also pays a six figure salary. Um, and then the keeper of the privy purse is the highest paid staff member at the palace and they make 180,000 pounds. Um, that role of course is responsible for managing family expenses and, um, in other parts of the finances. So it was actually noted in this article that I read that, um, the palace was actually, they came under criticism when the last comptroller, his salary was increased to 116,000. And I guess the public sort of criticized him. So I'm almost wondering if these are jobs paid by taxpayer money, Uh, if people want their taxpayer money to kind of go back to public goods and services rather than palace staff. I don't, I mean, I don't know, but it's something to think about. That's a fair point, but still, that's not a lot of money for a full-time job. I mean, or unless I'm really missing something here, that's, I don't know if if I could make 
that work. But um, listeners, if you want to live in the UK and make not a whole ton of money, but you get to watch the joy and delight on Her Majesty's face as she eats your pastries, then <laughs> apply now before it closes. So, okay. We're going to move for a minute into one of my favorite segments, Royals Around the World, because these stories this week from our non-British royal compadres are just as interesting if you ask me. So <laughs> this, this couple just makes me smile and it's also very strange. It's all strange, but um, <laughs> Princess Martha Louise of Norway reunited with her boyfriend shaman durek we've talked about them on the show before for her 50th birthday her birthday party consists is so random you're gonna get me on the giggles again and i just feel like we do that we we dissolve into giggles sometimes but i'm gonna try and keep it together her birthday party consisted of many members of the cast of the netflix show bling empire have you seen that show I, I don't even, I'm not even going to ask that question. <laughs> I love that show, but that's just so random. Anyway, um, in a very touching speech about his beloved shaman direct called Martha, his muse. Um, so very, very sweet. <laughs> okay. So but continuing on the bizarre train here um, in Monaco, this story just continues to be bizarre. Prince Albert stepped out for his own No Time to Die James Bond premiere, but instead of his wife, Princess Charlene, on his arm, he had actress Sharon Stone with him platonically. Not, I'm not insinuating that they were on a, a date or something, but Sharon Stone has been randomly appearing at a lot of royal events in Monaco lately. Meanwhile, Charlene shared kind of a bizarre photo of herself sitting alone at a table, smiling, looking very frail, if, if you ask me, very thin, um, in front of what appears to be an open Bible that was captioned simply, God bless. So that situation continues to get stranger and stranger. Do you have any thoughts on any of this so far? Jump in if you do. It, this is weird. I mean, why <laughs> is he out with Sharon Stone? No, she, Sharon, I am not insinuating anything. So please don't at me. <laughs> I know, I, I, I know. But I, not you, not you, but like listeners that just have a bone to pick. But I'm not saying they're they're having some clandestine. Well, it's not clandestine. They're out there on red carpets, but um, affair or anything. That's not what I'm saying. But she keeps showing up with him at the, like, she's kind of like Charlene, like Charlene's like random stand-in lately. And that makes no sense. We haven't heard if Princess Charlene is back in Monaco yet, right? Or is she, she's still in. I don't think so. I don't think, I think we would have heard if she was. So I don't think she is. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's just of all people, Sharon Stone, like uh, I, okay. Um, so then this is, we're going to pivot to more serious and upsetting news. Uh, by the way, I love that we, I say this every time we do it, but Royals around the world is so doggone fascinating. Like Royals around the world are more interesting sometimes than the British Royal family, just putting that out there. But, um, in some more serious and upsetting news, Japan's princess Mako has been 
diagnosed with PTSD ahead of her wedding. That's it's so sad to think that she's going through this right before what should be the happiest time in her life. So the Japanese royal family blames the media, proving that it's not just the British royals that have troubles with the press. Princess Mako, we've talked about this on the show before too, will marry commoner and aspiring lawyer Ki Kimuro on October 26th, later this month, even though the media and the public have not been particularly supportive of the union. He's a commoner and she's giving up her royal title to marry him. As we reported in a previous episode, the newlyweds plan to settle down in New York City. And there was a Russian royal wedding for the first time since the Russian Revolution. Descendants of the Tsarist Romanov dynasty were married in Russia's first royal wedding in over a century when Grand Duke George Mikhailovich Romanov, I nailed that, by the way, I can't (laughs) pronounce anything, but I nailed that. I'm going to say it again. Grand Duke George Mikhailovich Romanov married Italian Victoria Romanova Betterini, which I also (laughs) nailed. I'm on a roll today, Friday in St. Petersburg. So Victoria's dress is so similar to the type of dress I want for my own wedding. Did you see it? What did you think? This is exciting. More royals around the world. Yeah, I loved hearing about this wedding and and reading about it. Um, So I actually felt like the dress was strikingly similar to Meghan Markle's wedding gown. It was. It was a little shinier, but yes. It was a little shinier, but it was that very simple um, fabric, uh, you know, the longer sleeves, the higher neckline. Um, She had a very interesting, delicate headpiece um, that she Mm -hmm. wore as well, Um, but it looked like a really beautiful wedding. Yeah, and I also appreciate that the groom was 40 and the bride was 39 because I just turned 35. And so I appreciate an older bride. So I just wanted to put that out there too. Um, Royals around the world are making a splash this week. So we just jumped from Europe to Asia. And now we're going to go back to the UK for a moment to talk about Jack Brooksbank, who uh, is, of course, Eugenie's husband. He spilled the juice that there is apparently an underground tunnel that connects St. James's Palace to Duke's Bar, but that unfortunately he hasn't used the tunnel yet. So loyal followers of Buckingham Palace already know that the white drawing room is used for small gatherings where key guests are presented to the queen before the crowd then heads into a larger room for the main event. So that's pretty cool. Um, That way they can go through the tunnel and not be seen. And then they just show up at the bar. Yeah, that is really interesting. And two thoughts. One, I really want to go check out Duke's bar. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And next, do you think that Jack got like, in trouble for spilling these beans or do you think he was like (laughs) they gave him permission to share this uh I think if Jack got in trouble for anything it wasn't this this year (laughs) remember the boat scandal like we've already forgotten this but I'm just um, imagining uh Eugenie pulling him aside and being like you're not supposed to talk about the secret (laughs) why did you tell them about the tunnel Jack um (laughs) look I think the Yorks have uh bigger fish to fry. We'll just leave it there right now. Then, then Jack talking about a tunnel to a bar. Um, if, if Jack's in trouble, then, uh, 
I would I would encourage the Yorks to reevaluate their priorities because <laughs> there's uh, bigger issues on the table. I'll just I'll just say that. But um, anyway, Duke's Bar added to the list of places in London we need to go whenever we make uh, yeah, it across yeah. the pond. Okay, I don't even think I should ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you seen Diana the Musical on Netflix yet? I have not. Okay. Talk well, I watched it over the weekend <laughs> and I need our listeners to weigh in with me on this. So I found myself at parts thinking this is the most awful thing I've ever seen in my life, especially when James Hewitt, I'm spoiler alert. I mean, this isn't a spoiler. Hello. We know about who James Hewitt is. Um, he, he enters the scene shirtless on horseback and I'm going to kind of butcher the words but it's the the lyrics of it's a musical so the lyrics of the song are James something like James Hewitt he's gonna do it like meaning (laughs) Diana (laughs) and yeah and but then I found myself crying at the end because I mean obviously again no spoiler alerts here but Diana dies and and the way they handled it was really was actually really well done but I will tell you I was constantly entertained I don't I don't really know what to think of this um a lot of people are saying and I kind of agree I can't believe that Harry who is employed by Netflix at least in a con like in some kind of a contract capacity allowed this to go on the air though if he had any say in it it talks far too much about the sex lives of his parents both of his parents like the main I guess crux of the musical is you know that both of his parents are having affairs on each other throughout their marriage Charles with Camilla and Diana with James and um it just it, it would be way too personal if that was a musical about my mother for me to be comfortable with it and I'm associated with with Netflix maybe he had no say I don't know um I'm always the wrong person to ask about musicals because I'm generally and not a huge fan of them but I will say I was gripped the whole two hours and that for me is a lot some of the time I was cringing but I was I was entertained so it's worth a watch just to be part of the water cooler conversation, I guess. I, I would love to know what our listeners think. So feel free to DM us or email us because I want to process this with someone because it was yeah. like, it was I'm odd. I'm going to it out this week. Um, I do have to feel like though, even though he's employed by Netflix, there's got to be um, some limitations with that. I'm sure his contract says, you know, he can't comment on other shows that they're producing if he's not involved with them. I have no idea. It's all speculation on my end, but, um, I mean, you know, I, I sort of see him as, you know, working with Netflix on some individual projects, but otherwise not, you know, a full on, um, contributor to all of their content, but who knows? Um, but yeah, I'll check this out for sure. Yeah. Uh, you got to tell me what you think. Like the James the part, I, huh? Well, I knew it was coming out, but I forgot it was coming out this past week. So yeah, it came out last Friday on October 1st, but, um, one of the songs that I've had stuck in my head all week is the Thrilla in Manila, but it's Diana and Camilla. Because they're like, they're having a confrontation, like Diana, anyway, Diana comes with Charles to a party where he's meeting up with Camilla to confront her. It's just, God, I just, musicals are not my jam, but um, would, would 
be very interested to hear anybody's feedback on that. Okay, so now it is time, finally, for Royal Reads. So both of these books, by the way, are available now and, in my opinion, are totally worth reading. So we have our own Royal Book Club, Royal Reads. Woo! So we hope you enjoy reading as much as we do. So we're going to start with The Windsor Diaries. So this is written by Alethea Fitzalan Howard and is pulled from her diaries, literally her actual diaries, from 1940 to 1945. And it speaks candidly about her childhood at Windsor with Elizabeth, who would have been a teenager, and Margaret, who would have been about 10 to about 15 in these years. So I just want to start off at the top. What did you think? I mean, I think it's so incredible that they're able to actually capture, um, you know, written pieces from her diary like this. I mean, what are the odds, you know, that that someone who um, had this diary actually, um, you know, interacted with Elizabeth and is able to have a book about this now? Um, really, really cool. Yeah, well, her frankness, if if I'm honest, is kind of astounding. So on August 21st, 1940, she wrote of Elizabeth as she, Alethea, was going to Margaret's birthday party, quote, how different she was from what M is now, so much more serious and grown up and yet not nearly so sweet and attractive. (laughs) Okay, then. Um, There's definitely a lot of jealousy that permeates throughout this book between Alethea and Elizabeth. They are quote unquote best friends, but I'm like, God, with friends like these, like who needs a friend? But um, she, you know, obviously Elizabeth came from a really stable, loving, supportive family life. The four of them, her parents and she and Margaret were incredibly close. Alethea didn't have that. Alethea loved the queen mother, who was then at this time the queen, of course, and she wrote of her in 1941, quote, she is so sweet and kind and without (laughs) and without being beautiful, she has such irresistible charm, one could not help loving her. Okay, Alethea's compliments are always like a poo sandwich, compliment, hidden dig, hidden insult, compliment, (laughs) um, She loves her, but she had to throw in there that she wasn't beautiful. So thanks for that. So um, in April, 1941, Alethea finds out that Elizabeth has a boyfriend and it's an old chap named Philip. (laughs) So if you do the math, that would have made Elizabeth just turned 15 and Philip is nearly 20, 19, about to be 20. So then in June, 1941, She writes, quote, M, who is Margaret, asked me again if I liked her as she said she wasn't sure. How could one not like her? She's inherited all her mother's charm more than L. And L, of course, stands for Lilibet, which has been resurrected in the past few months because that's Meghan and Harry's daughter's name. But that was that was Elizabeth's childhood nickname. You can jump in here at any point, by the way, if you want to say I was going to say, I noticed that name referenced in the book, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, that's what they all called her. I mean, that's originally, that's what the queen called herself, because she couldn't say Elizabeth. It came out Lilibet, and then everybody just took to calling her that. So then we kind of start to see in on July 7th, 1941, in this entry, 
we really see how jealous this friend is of Elizabeth. She says, quote, how I envy Lilibet's life, not only for its grandeur, but for the fact that she has so many dear, kind people to do everything for her, not only because it's their job, but because they love her and only wish to serve her. But that spirit has gone from the world now with ordinary people, end quote. So, you know, it just, it makes me kind of sad because there just seems to be a lot of resentment from Alethea to Princess Elizabeth, a whole lot of jealousy. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, she is very fascinated with who Elizabeth is in in this sort of role. And it's it's like this, I don't know, like a frenemy maybe? (laughs) Well, yeah, but the thing is Elizabeth doesn't see her as a frenemy. Like Elizabeth sees her, and we'll say this in a second. Um, well, actually, in this next entry, Elizabeth calls her her best friend. But well, you know, but I almost feel like too, like um, you know, these were things in her private diary. So I'm sure Elizabeth was not aware. Oh of, no, no way of any of this. No, and I just, I mean, Alethea is is dead to my knowledge. Um, but I just wonder like if she would have approved of these diaries being released. Cause I mean, I didn't keep a diary when I was a teenager, but I would, if I did, I wouldn't want it to be released as a book, no way. especially if I'm talking about my famous best friend who happens to be the queen. Um, so anyway, she calls Elizabeth very old for her age, which was meant as a compliment. And she says that Elizabeth has lovely eyes, which she does if you've ever, I mean, none of us have gazed into the queen's eyes, but if you've ever seen pictures of her, she does have pretty eyes. Uh, So does Margaret, by the way. And then Alethea writes on December 19th, 1941, quote, P.E., which stands for Princess Elizabeth, calls me her best friend. But if friendship means seeing people on informal but not intimate terms to her, it means more than that to me. It means confidences exchanged, joys and sorrow shared, lasting remembrance. I have offered her my friendship. I love her and I miss her when I don't see her, but she doesn't miss me. Why should she? She has PM, Princess Margaret, and the K, King, and the Queen, and the Q, Queen. Um, There's a lot of abbreviations in the book, if you haven't picked up on that. Um, They're all happy and have fun together. She doesn't need me, but I need her. She has made me her friend and I couldn't abandon her even if she abandoned me for I haven't got a home. I'm a lonely stranger in my family except for one little baby sister and she is far away and one day she too will be estranged from me. So I depend on my friends for the love and comfort I lack elsewhere, end quote. Um, Kind of heavy, honestly. I mean- You know, I, Elizabeth, I, I, I say Elizabeth again, the queen, her majesty, um, but in the book, she's just Elizabeth. I mean, you know, she's just a teenager and, um, you know, she, she does know that one day she will be queen because her father is king by this point, but, you know, she's just Princess Elizabeth or just a little bit to Alethea. And, you know, she, I can see her being more of one of those friends that, you know, you have fun together, but you don't necessarily spill your guts to them. You know, she's still princess and heir presumptive of the throne. And, you know, Alethea is searching for what seems to be a deeper friendship to fill the void that's left by her family, not really being super healthy. 
And she's not finding that in Elizabeth. And what comes in its place is just a lot of resentment for the tight knit family that Elizabeth has. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just makes me think of the range of emotions that teenagers experience. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It was in the 1940s, but still relatable to what um, teenage girls, you know, go through today and, and feeling like they need the support of their friends and they need that, um, that support group. Yeah. And then jumping ahead to, I'm just pulling out some of my favorite passages that I marked. You like, we shared a book. So you saw the book all marked up with my little yeah. sticky notes or whatever, but November 19th, 1942 quote, I suddenly fell to wondering what fate awaited this girl who was in character and taste so much simpler than I, again, Alethea with the digs. Yeah. Um, will she stand out in history as another great Elizabeth? Or will she merely be a commonplace puppet in a rapidly degenerating monarchy? End quote. So, I mean, I, I don't really study the monarchy back then. I really kind of pick up my, my, if I had an expertise area, my expertise area picks up when Diana enters the picture in the early eighties, but I didn't realize that the monarchy was degenerating. I mean, I guess maybe after uh, David abdicated, Maybe that was six years prior to her writing this. So maybe that's what she means, but I didn't get that really. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure feelings on that sort of ebb and flow throughout history, depending on, you know, what's, what's going on. And, and so, you know, I definitely feel in our lifetime, it's, it's not felt that way, but. Well, Alethea, spoiler alert, Elizabeth did great for herself. She is another great Elizabeth. Um, and we love that the queen is a woman of simpler tastes. We love her just as she is. So jumping ahead from 1942 to December 11th, 1945, this is the last entry we'll read from the book. Quote, I always fear P.E., of course, Princess Elizabeth, will forget me. And what I mind most is the fact that other people expect one to go. And I expect because I am proud and jealous I suffer intensely inwardly. And she writes in French, it is sometimes terrible to be the friend of a princess. So I recommend this book. It's a very interesting look into the childhood goings-ons of Elizabeth and Margaret at Windsor as kids. It's, you know, they didn't, they didn't have the, obviously the responsibility of being, you know, being the queen yet. Um, that, that wouldn't happen for another roughly 10-ish years. And I, I just think it's a, a totally amazing insight into this part of her life that we don't always know. Obviously, when she became queen, when she was 25, you know, we know so much about her life and her daily goings-ons, but not so much when she was a child. And I thought it was in, an incredibly good read. Yeah, I, like I said, I think it's really, really cool that, you know, someone kept this diary and happened to know Princess Elizabeth at that time and that it has made its way into a book now and we can go back and reference this, but, um, but really, really interesting. And I, I do also wonder, um, you know, I, I sort of feel like she probably did not intend for this to be shared publicly and it makes you wonder what Queen Elizabeth's thoughts are on all of that today. You wonder if, I mean, I can't imagine that she has, but
but if Elizabeth, if, if Elizabeth, I'm so used to reading Elizabeth in the book and the queen, if the queen has, has, knows about this book or has read it, um, it would, it would be fascinating to see and hear her thoughts on that I'm time. Sure, in her life. I'm sure she's been told about it. I, but I wonder if she's read, I wonder if she, cause it's, it's an easy read cause it's just diary entries. And, um, so it's, it's not a, it's not a long, I mean, it's about, I don't know, 300 or so 400 pages, but you know, they're just diary entries. So I wonder if she's paged through it yet. I would be interested to know that we'll never know. So, okay. Moving into our second Royal Reads book club pick. Prince Philip's Century by Robert Jobson, who is known as the godfather of royal reporting. He is the royal editor of the Evening Standard and has been a royal commentator for over 25 years. He's basically a legend in this field. So the book is a deep look into the life of Prince Philip, who of course died just before his 100th birthday earlier this year. The book starts off with an epigraph from Philip, one of Philip's most famous quotes. Quote, I, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, do become your liege man of life and limb and of earthly worship and faith and truth I will bear unto you to live and die against all manner of folks. So help me God, end quote. So he said this, of course, at his wife's coronation on June 2nd, 1953, and he spent the rest of his life living that oath out. By the way, the book reminds us that he planned her coronation, by the way, which the crown goes over, but um, it was a nice reminder. So on the next page, another quote that I think symbolizes who Philip was, quote, life is going to go on after me. If I can make life marginally and more tolerable for people who come afterwards, or even at the time, I'd be delighted, end quote. I think that really speaks to his dedication to duty and service and how he realized that, you know, he, he just never took himself too seriously and he knew that he was an important part of the queen's life but he also didn't act like oh I'm Prince Philip Duke of Edinburgh you know he he also was just a real person you know yeah I agree I feel like um it really speaks to his overall view of his duty um in you know to his country and in the world and the legacy that he leaves behind and being very aware of that um you know he's a prince but I think first in his mind, he um, had a responsibility and he took that very seriously. Yeah. And, and by the way, this conversation already has me wanting to see the BBC documentary. I need some U.S. air dates, please. Hello. I know you're listening to Podcast Royal, BBC. <laughs> so um, before I go into some things that I learned, I was wondering overall what you thought of the book. Um, yeah, well, you know, of course, I always love seeing the little photos of, of Prince Philip when he was younger. Um, and, and I just think having these little peeks into his life through these books, um, you know, there have been a few that have come out about him, but um, they really reveal things about him that we wouldn't otherwise get just through media coverage or um, articles we see online. And it's really just a special glimpse into the personal life of Prince Philip um, as you know, as a husband, a father, a grandfather, a great grandfather, um, and just really who he was and his, in his character. So, um, you know, if, mm -hmm. if listeners are someone who finds Prince Philip to be a really 
cool uh, person. This is a, a great book for them to read. Yeah, and he was an interesting person. He lived a full, long life. And Robert Jobson has obviously really done his research on this book. And, you know, we know at least a little bit about Philip from what, you know, his public life for so many years. And um, The Crown um, is it's fictional, but it's also based in, in truth. And so we knew a lot about him. But here are some things I learned in the book that either... I learned for the first time where I was reminded by um, through through reading this book. So his personal motto in life was just get on with it. He was not one to sit around and sulk and uh, be depressed. He was just very much, you know, pull up by your bootstraps and and get on with it. He was not, and by the way, feel free to cut in on me at any time as I ramble over here, but he was not good at receiving compliments, according to his wife, the queen, who, of course, as we famously know, called him her strength and stay. The queen, according to so many different sources, could not have found a better partner. They made each other laugh, and they were, as a couple, never closer than during the COVID lockdown in 2020 at Windsor Castle together. Um, most of what Philip did was behind the scenes. He was keen to have it that way. Her Majesty remembers meeting Philip in July 1939 when she was 13 and he was 18, but their paths actually crossed five years before that at the wedding of his first cousin, Princess Marina of Greece and Denmark to Prince George, who was later the Duke of Kent. Elizabeth was eight then and she was a bridesmaid at that wedding and Philip was 13, but they, they saw each other, um, but I mean, she was eight years old, you know, so that when they met again um, in 1939, that's kind of when the sparks flew. So Philip, we, the crown touches on this, but Philip's uncle, Lord Mountbatten was very strategically trying to set Philip up with Elizabeth. It worked, obviously. Philip was aware of it. Lord Mountbatten believed that Philip marrying Elizabeth would create a house of Mountbatten, which of course um, the crown really plays this out that, you know, it's Mountbatten Windsor um, and how upset Philip was to, as he said, and I'm butchering this quote, the only man in the country not able to give his children his last name. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a side that I like to see of Philip was that he was quite a romantic. He wrote to Elizabeth in 1946 Quote, to have been spared in the war and seen victory, to have been given the chance to rest and readjust myself, to have fallen in love completely and unreservedly makes all one's personal and even the world's troubles seem small and petty, end quote. I mean, we don't write letters anymore and it's just such a lost art. So yeah, I've, I've heard that quote by him before and I, I really like it. Yeah, they, I mean, they're just such a love match for each other. So Elizabeth apparently sparkled when Philip was around. I love these details about their love story. Um, this is fascinating to me. On the way to his wedding rehearsal, Philip was clocked, pulled over by the police for speeding. Um, and on his wedding day, he had 12 pennies in the bank which makes me feel a little better about my own financial standing, <laughs> but 12 pennies in the bank. Um, I didn't know this baby Charles did not join his parents in Malta when they went to Malta. Um, Malta was proof that Philip was destined for a great career in the Royal Navy, but of course life had other plans. The queen's father died 
and they were um, automatically sent back to the UK and duty called. Philip absolutely loathed the press, but he knew he had to use them. He really did try to modernize the family, like that ill-fated documentary, The Royal Family. Um, also, you know, he was a trendsetter even before Charles and certainly before William and Harry. Philip was a staunch environmentalist. And, you know, all we ever hear about is the cross relationship between Philip and Diana. But Diana wrote him and in, in the text of these letters are in the book. Diana wrote him some lovely letters expressing her affection for him. And despite his rough exterior and propensity for putting his foot in his mouth, which he himself admitted to, he loved his wife and his family fiercely. And he really was the backbone of the family. So I loved this book. I think it was really well-written. It was really easy to read. It was well-researched. And um, that's our second Royal Reads pick is Prince Philip's Century. What a life, right? Yeah, incredible. Um, I have learned so much about him in this past year, especially, um, you know, and we've talked about this before, but it's, um, you know, just kind of a shame that, you know, we don't learn these things sometimes until after someone passes, but, um, but it, it's also, you know, it, it was a good opportunity to get to know more about his life and, um, and his legacy. And, and I, I really like Prince Philip. I think he um, is a very interesting, interesting person who's accomplished quite a lot. Yeah. What a life almost, we'll just round it up by two months and say a hundred years. Um, and he, he used those years to really do some good. And I know that Philip gets this reputation as this gruff guy, but um, he really did make a difference in his own way. So those are our two Royal Reads picks. Listeners, they're both out now. We totally recommend both. Um, what a full episode we've had. Royals around the world, two books, lots of Royal news, anything else for the good of the order? Just, um, you know, thank you for introducing these books to our podcast, Royal Family. Um, you know, we do hope our listeners enjoy them. And listeners, please share your takeaways with us. If you joined us in this um, first little book club, we would love to know your thoughts on the books that we read. Um, but we'd also really love your thoughts on some of the other things we talked about today. Uh, you know, what do you think about the wages of the employees at uh, Buckingham Palace. Do you think it's appropriate? Do you think it's too low? What are your thoughts on Sienna Elizabeth? Are you inspired by this name? Um, do you um, do you love that they made a nod to Her Majesty? We'd love to hear. And then, of course, I want to hear everyone's thoughts on the secret underground tunnel. So, and Diana the musical. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rachel is, <laughs> she is waiting to get some feedback. I need someone to process this with me. <laughs> it oh, was kind of sorry. Um, it was, it was entertaining if nothing else, but I need processing friends. So we always answer our DMS. They're always open email us. Um, and then, you know, we've got so much to look forward to for the rest of October. So many exciting guests lined up for you. So stay tuned, listeners. Uh, I'm really passionate about reading and about books. So it's an honor to be able to bring our first two Royal Reads picks to you. And I hope you enjoy them as much as we did. Um, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast Royal. Like I said, we are always in the DM. So reach out to us, email us at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com. 
and follow us, rate us, review us. Uh, episode 40, a good one in the books. Thank you for being here and we hope you have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.